The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. For just as the body is one, and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized with one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And all God's people said, you may be seated. show up and feed your sheep, they will go away hungry. And so, Father, as we now hear the word before preparing to come to these tables and see and touch and taste the word, Father, we ask you first to do that work, which only you can do. Prepare our hearts, Father. not only given us eyes to see and ears to hear, Father, we pray that you would grant us those hearts of good soil that would receive the seed that's about to be sown and produce much fruit, fruit that abides to our good and to your glory, Father. We ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Go ahead and return to your feet, please. We continue working verse by verse through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We read this morning Ephesians chapter 4. We'll read from verse 1 all the way down through verse 6. This is the holy, inerrant, inspired, infallible, sufficient, authoritative word of God. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. So surely by now you're not only aware of, but maybe even growing a little tired of having me remind you of the fact that Paul has got a very familiar pattern to his writing. And I I repeat this because it's more than just Paul's peculiar pattern. It is the way that our minds must work. Paul always moves from the indicative to the imperative. He begins with doctrine and theology, and then he moves to the walk. 
to the duty? How are we meant to live this thing out? And as you know by now, his letter to the Ephesians divides very neatly into equal three chapter halves. First three chapters being the indicative, the last three being the imperative. And now we're in the last half. We're, we find ourselves here in chapter four. And one of the things that I, I hope that I prepared you for whenever we made this switch is that the change in focus, while it is sharp, it is not absolute. And, and we see that this morning. The fourth chapter began with what we've, what we've just concluded. I think six weeks now we've been studying those first few verses there. And we read him beginning with, I therefore, pointing back to the indicative, therefore, in light of all that, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And then we spent time dissecting and considering together what are the marks of the worthy walk? Humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance with one another. And then last week, an eagerness to maintain the unity that God has given us by his spirit, this thing we might call a bond of peace. So we spent a lot of time last week really considering together why he would choose to use this word maintain. And I pray that you walked out of here with a very clear picture in your mind, the reality that this is not a thing that we build or manufacture, not true unity, not true Christian unity, the way that God has called us to it. It's not a thing that we can create. More than this, it is highly offensive to God when we pretend like we can. Whenever we find ourselves as a church lacking unity, and instead of coming to the means of grace that he has given us, and instead of fixing our eyes upon him and trust and in faith, we just throw a bunch of stuff against the wall to find out what sticks. We settle for the lowest com common denominator. We figure out, okay, how can we manufacture and build some sense of camaraderie and fellowship and unity here in the church? This is not a thing that we can do. It's a thing that has been given us by God, the bond of peace accomplished by his spirit. And, and we further solidify that and, and really try to put some meat on it, so to speak, to try to really get our eyes fixed on the picture is we came back to the evening service and we considered that beautiful bond, an incredible unity that we found in Jonathan and David. You remember how that story goes. It says that as soon as he was finished speaking with Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. It's not a thing that Jonathan did. It's a thing that he found happening to him. His soul knit to the soul of another. In unexplainable ways, these men should have been enemies and yet bound together in a very real and committed way. So we must recognize that our job is not to create this unity, but rather to value it, to learn to cherish it. As we come to an understanding of exactly what it cost God to buy us this unity, the precious blood of his son, and if we recognize how absolutely essential it is for the health of the church, if we're going to continue being the church of Christ, if we're going to have any help of reflecting his glory to the world, if there's any chance that we're going to endure to the end, this must be our goal, to maintain the unity that he's given us. So therefore, we have, must have a zealousness, eager is the word he uses, making every effort being diligent to protect and to preserve and to pursue this oneness in Christ Jesus. But then it seems as though Paul might wonder if we're going to jump right off into trying to run our own two feet 
okay, the, the training wheels are off. We've got this, Dad. Let go. And now we, now we take off. And so what does he do? No sooner does he talk about this first of the imperatives, this, this worthy walk and what life is meant to look like, then he immediately takes us right back to the origin. He gets our eyes fixed back on God so we can know not just the origin, but the nature of this unity that we're meant to have. Before moving on with any more of the practical stuff, he gets us right back there. Fix your eyes on God and on all that he has accomplished. Now we'll come back to talking about walking again. Look down the page a little bit at verse 17. You see, he says there, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. There's more that Paul has to say about this practice and the, the walking that is meant to mark our life. But first, we're going to find ourselves here in verse 4 through 16. There's going to be some implied commandments there, and he's going to talk about the means by which he works to bring about his purposes. But ultimately, he's directing our gaze off of ourselves. Now, because we're talking about unity and we're talking about fellowship within the church, when I say to you, he directs our gaze off of ourselves, you might expect me to then say, and on to one another. Think less about yourself and think more of your brother. Spend less time worrying about yourself and more about the church. That's not what he does. He gets our gaze off of ourself and firmly puts it right back on heaven. Considering those unseen things, the work that God has done, that is the basis and the nature of this unity. So we see here in verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now you might be interested to know that those first two words there, there is, they're not found in the original Greek. Although, I think the translators do well in adding them in here because they're making clear that this is a statement, there is. It's just a statement of what is. Again, making clear, this is not a thing that we have created. This is a thing that is because of the work of God. Making clear that this is an indicative statement, a doctrinal statement, a theological statement, not a call for you to go do something. So they do well to add these words, there is. But in the Greek, there's no conjunction there, as is Paul's normal fashion that shows us how everything that comes now ties back to what came before. So if you were reading it with like a wooden literalism, you'd read something like, Walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, one body, one spirit, one hope. And I think that when you hear it in those terms, you understand that what he's making clear to us here is this is not some disconnected digression. It wasn't as though Paul launched off into this is the stuff you're meant to do. This is how your life is meant to look. And then he remembered over here that he forgot some theology. And so he just abandoned his thought and went back there. He's making clear, no, this is intimately connected. This thought that is found right here. This is intimately connected to everything that came before and everything that follows. Here is the ultimate grounding, the true character of this great and supernatural unity that God has given us. So you, you've got to remember that the way we're meant to understand this, this unity and this communion and fellowship he's given us is that it's not just an affinity for one another. It's not even just a commitment to one another. You remember when we considered together on Sunday evening, Jonathan and David, you remember how 
His heart was bound. His soul was knit to David. He loved him as his own soul. And then they entered into covenant together. The covenant was an expression of that love. But that this unity that we're looking at here, it's not just an affinity for one another. It's not even just a covenanting to one another. This unity is a oneness. That's the root word there. It's, it's a oneness that we enjoy. And so we shouldn't be surprised then that what we find in verses 4 through 6 is a sevenfold use of the word one. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. So Robert Stephanus, when he divided the scriptures up into the verses that we find today, I think he did well to divide them up as he is, as he did. What you find is, if you just look carefully here, you will find two groups of three ones together. And then sitting kind of all by itself is a singular one in verse 6. In that singular one, God the Father, in verse 6, we find four uses of the word all. One God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. Now, I'll leave it up to you to figure out what these numbers mean, if anything, why he chose seven here and four here, if you believe that's pure coincidence. But the point is, once you realize the way in which Paul has ordered his thoughts here, once you realize he has organized these verses around one, each one of these verses around one of the three members of the blessed Holy Trinity, then you immediately see this truth that he is driving your eyes, he's driving your heart, he's directing your gaze right back to God. You see it there in verse 4. One body, one spirit, one hope. The spirit, it's found right there, verse 5. One Lord, that is Christ, one faith, one baptism. Then in verse 6, one God and Father. This is much like Paul's pattern at the beginning of the letter. You remember how we spent a lot, of t- a lot of time looking together at the way in which he worked in verse, excuse me, in chapter 1 through the triune nature of our redemption. Beginning with verse 3 through 6, everything that the Father had planned in eternity past. Verses 7 through 12, everything that the Son had come to accomplish at the appointed time. And in verse 13 and 14, the Spirit's applying all of that to us. And I told you that it's God's general pattern. The general working of God in redemption and in everything else is all things coming from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. All things returning to the Father, by the Spirit, through the Son, to Him, the Father. So what we find here is that in each of these verses, verses 4, verse 5, and verse 6, they tell us something about the way in which this triune God relates to his church and the way in which this relation works itself out and bringing us into this oneness. Do you remember how I took you to Jesus' prayer in the upper room in John 17 last week? And we talked about the fact that Jesus' prayer there on the night before he was going to be crucified, he's praying there, Holy Father, verse 11, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. I do not ask, skipping down to verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Remember, I told you that what we're seeing here in this oneness that is accomplished by the Father and the Son and the Spirit, they're folding us into this, this love that they've enjoyed before the foundation of the world. 
He's asking that we as a people would be one, even as the Father and the Son and the Spirit are one. So as we come now to verse 4, we consider together this first grouping of three ones. What you'll immediately recognize is that these are not these are not unknown topics to us, even here in the book of Ephesians. You remember, he's already written about each of these things, that the church is one body, that the Spirit of God fills this one church, and that there's one hope to which God has called us as the church. And so as we prepare to come together to take of this one bread together, we're going to move a little quicker than usual, I think. It may be good news to some of you. It may be disappointing to others. But we're going to, I believe, we're going to be able to tackle all three of these first ones. Or at least touch on all three of these first ones here this morning. And then maybe we'll slow down a bit when we get to verses 5 and 6. So verse 4, he says that there is one body. Now you all know that God uses just a plethora of metaphors with regards to the church of Jesus Christ. Even here in the book of Ephesians, but I read one commentator this week that he estimated throughout the whole of the New Testament, there is something like 90 different metaphors, different pictures that God paints for us with regards to the church. And I've told you something on, on a number of times, and I, the, the more I study the scriptures, the more I find it to be true, that the more various pictures and words and phrases that God uses to try and explain a thing to us, the the more delicate, the more precious, and the more complex that thing is. It's as though he's holding up something before us and saying, your human mind and your human eyes and your human heart, you can't contain it all in one image or in one word. And so like a diamond, I'm going to just turn it and turn it and turn it in the light, trusting that with each glance, you'll see it a little more fully. With each glance, you'll come to recognize and to appreciate its beauty a little bit more. But think about some of those pictures that we've seen. We've talked about the church as the bride of Christ. We've talked about the church as the family of God. We've talked about the church as the, as the household of God. We've talked about it as the building itself, the very temple of God. We've talked about the church as those who are citizens of the kingdom of God. You go outside of the book of Ephesians, you hear us talked about a flock who belongs to Christ Jesus, the great shepherd. But Paul uses no picture with more regularity than the one we find here, that the church is a body. We're a body. As David read, we're a body with many members. But we're not just a body, are we? What's he say in chapter 1, verse 22? That God put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all and all. We're not just a body. We're not just somebody. We are the body of Christ. He repeats the same thing in chapter 4, verse 11. He says that he gave the apostles and prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Then again, we'll come to it in chapter 5, comparing the, the relationship between the church and and Christ and a husband and his wife, he brings in the same picture here. Ephesians 5.22 says, Wives, submit to your own husband as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. 
So I think we do well to slow down this morning, even though we've touched on this at previous points. In light of everything that we've studied about the unity that we're meant to enjoy and the worthy walk that we're trying to live out together, I think that we possibly do well to call time out this morning and ask, why does Paul and why does Christ himself use this picture of us as the body? Well, firstly, I think it's because the body is an organic and an active and a a living and a growing thing. If you talk to many professing believers, you talk to many people who belong to the church and you ask them to explain what is it that you do and and who are you as as a people, you'll find them thinking in terms that are almost purely organizational. They'll talk about a group of people who's decided to come together under certain rules and structures and guidelines for some common good. But if you really get down to the heart of it, you realize it's not completely unlike a social club or a political party. The way in which they relate to each other is not all that different from an investment group or an insurance co-op or a, a coalition of some sorts. And so that's, I think, why we must remind ourselves that what the Apostle Paul is talking about here, when he talks about the church as the body, ultimately he is not talking about the visible church, but the invisible, the global, the universal, the spiritual church. Now, I've I've taken great pains. I've gone to great lengths to try and make clear that he is, in fact, talking to a visible church gathering. He's talking to the church in Ephesus and to the various churches that surround the Lysus Valley there in that place. Just as he's talking to us here, we're a visible manifestation. We're a local gathering of the invisible church into a visible congregation here at First Baptist Crosby. Yet, we know that not everyone that belongs to the visible church, that everyone that's been baptized into a local congregation like this one actually belongs to the church. Not everyone who belongs to the lowercase c church belongs to the uppercase c invisible church. And so when we're dealing with organizations, if you think in those terms, when you're dealing with an organization, you know that people come and people go. People show up for multivarious reasons and people show up with with all kinds of purposes and they're brought in in all kinds of, of different ways. And for some people, they find that it fits for them. They find that things click and they find their place and their purpose and they ride the thing out because it suits them. For other people, they don't seem to find their place and so they just kind of lose interest and they wander off. But this isn't the biblical picture at all. The picture he's painting here of a body is of something that is vital and organic. It's a a living organism. This isn't a thing that grows by cobbling together disparate parts and, and pieces. I want you to think about the human body. There's purpose in why he uses the picture of the body. Think about this human body. Where does it begin? From one single cell. Fertilized and given life. And then the process begins, right? The cells splitting and the whole thing expanding and growing. And then God willing, it moves on uninterrupted until you've got the full body. Healthy and active and ready to do what it's been created for. But you start with one cell. And you end up from that one cell multiplying into trillions. But everything that the person would become, it was all right there in the beginning. The biological makeup and the DNA, everything that this human is going to become, it's right there found in that singular cell. Think about the way that you build your babies. He doesn't come like he's been shipped from Ikea. He's not Mr. Potato Head where you snap on some arms and a mouth and a mustache would be pretty funny. 
That's not the way that it comes. It grows and it develops and it matures. And so it is with the church. You know that we were all right there. All of humanity, we were all right there in the beginning with Adam. I would put to your consideration the picture of Hebrews 7.10 and us being in the loins maybe even of Adam. But, but physically and especially spiritually, every single person that would ever live, we were all right there with that one man there in the garden. We were all there with the man of dust. That's what Romans 5 tells us. But now in this new creation, those who belong not to Adam, but ultimately to the second Adam, to Christ Jesus, the one from heaven. We've been made one new man is what Paul says in chapter 2. One new man in Christ Jesus. So that all of those who are in this new humanity, we were also right there in him from the beginning. What does Paul say just in this letter? Chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. His life is our life. So that we can say, I've been crucified with Christ. I've been buried with Christ. I've been raised with Christ in a newness of life. Even now, I'm seated with Christ in heavenly places. His life is our life. We are there in him. So that as this growth comes, whether you're considering the growth of the church from Abraham or from, from Adam, carrying all the way through to you and I sitting here in this room, or if you think back to the 120 in the upper room at the day of Pentecost, to the innumerable saints around the throne when all is said and done, you immediately recognize this isn't like building a machine or, or cobbling together an army. This is, this is the thorough, outworking, organic process, this new life, this one new man growing out of this one man, Christ Jesus. And then what we find is that the body, it lives and it breathes and it grows and it moves and it, and it thrives all together. Then God willing, the head itself, it brings to us life and purpose and direction. The body does what it's been created to do. I, I want you to think about us right now. Think about what you're doing in this moment. You didn't have to call together a committee meeting or take a vote in order for your eyes to determine what it's going to do with what it's seeing. Your ears didn't have to call a one-on-one -on -one conversation with your brain in order to figure out, okay, what do I do with this information that's coming in? Your hand doesn't have to be reminded or reprimanded to take the food and bring it to your mouth. Your feet aren't offended when somebody comes up to you and says that you have a nice smile. Your face just knows to wince whenever you smash your thumb with a hammer. This is the way that a body works. There's a beauty and a necessity to the diversity that we have, but then there's this just natural and unrestrained unity that comes because of the way we've been built. That's this organic unity that it can't be severed either. Your arm doesn't just get to decide that you've offended it and it's going to just detach from the rest and go do its own thing. Your left ear doesn't become disgruntled because it doesn't get its way and decide it's going to fix onto somebody else's body. No, we're, we're one and, and have been one. And so that's why I had David read the text that he read earlier before the beginning of our sermon. And I returned to it. I'm going to read you the longer section here. This is, of course, Paul writing to a local congregation and a congregation that had some particular issues in this very area. But we find here in 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 12, for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. 
For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, I do not, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor can the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker and are indispensable. And on the parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greatest honor. And on our unpresentable parts, they are treated with the greatest modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Do you ever wonder where we get the phrase church member from? Your members, your pieces, not that we're cobbled together, not that we're stapled on. We're not Frankenstein. We're a body that has grown according to God's perfect plan, his purpose from before the foundation of the world. There is one body and there is one spirit. How does God then take all these unique individuals? Because we are weird. We can sometimes look a little bit like a Frankenstein. And you wonder, how does God take all these unique members and these people from far off? We've got Jews and Greeks and slaves and free and men and women and rich and poor and funny and serious and ugly and pretty. Figure out which one you are. Just all these people. How does he bring us together and make us into one body? What is, what is the connecting and animating force that gives us this sense of singular purpose? It's this one spirit. There's one spirit that inhabits us each individually and therefore inhabits us all corporately. What did it say? That Jonathan found his soul knitted together to David. So much so it was like they had only one soul. The same Holy Spirit, I remind you, that descended upon Christ Jesus, that accompanied him and empowered him all throughout his earthly ministry. That same singular spirit. Holy Spirit is one. That same spirit has come to dwell in all who belong to the church, all who are found in Christ. We, we see both pictures, the individual and the corporate, shown by Paul in his letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 speaks of the individual. He says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? But then earlier than that, 1 Corinthians three sixteen, he says, do you not know that you are God's temple? And it's that God's spirit dwells in you. So corporately, we're being built into a temple for the Holy Spirit of God. That God dwells with us. But then also this happens as that same spirit is dwelling in each one of us individually. There's a, there's a thing. I asked Andrew McNeil about this. He said this is not his bailiwick. But he's the smartest guy I knew, and so I asked him if, if I was right on this. So if I'm wrong on this, blame Andrew for not knowing more and correcting me, okay? <laughs> There's a thing called quantum entanglement. Y'all ever heard of this? It's basically where like two subatomic particles have become intertwined. 
and you can separate them as far as you want, like, like millions of light years, and any random thing that happens to one of these particles is matched by the other. You can, you can think, I'm, my mind goes all kinds of places. You can do some cool stuff with this. They say it moves quicker than the speed of light. Because you think about it, if it was, could only move the speed of what we think information can move or the speed of light, you'd move this thing over here and it might take billions of years for the thing over here to respond. They're saying, no, for some way, it's instantaneous. And I love whenever I get into scientific articles and I read this stuff and they'll always say, it seems like a miracle, but it's not. I ran into the same thing when I was reading about the formation of a baby. It seems miraculous, but don't worry, it's not. But I, I think there's some picture there. It's this Holy Spirit that fills me and fills you. And it fills our brothers on the other side of the globe. He is animating and giving life and informing and shaping and molding and moving us in ways. Perfect. Of course, it's, it's most clearly seen in a local congregation as, as we gather here. When I suffer, you suffer. When you suffer, I suffer. When, I exalt, when I'm exalted, you're exalted. And when I'm honored, you're honored. But it extends way beyond that to the very saints in heaven. That there's this bond that holds us together. That bond is none other than a singular spirit. Just as the fullness of man's lifeblood, it pulsates through his whole body. My finger has to have this lifeblood going through it or else it's not actually a part of the body. And I want you to think about how do you know when there's a problem? Let's say you've been out in the cold for a while and you're wondering if maybe a toe has gone dead. Maybe you've lost blood flow. It's when you stop feeling. When you can't feel what's going on in the rest of the body. Or when it lacks coordination, when your brain sends the signal and your foot doesn't do what you're telling it to do. Those are signs of something being broken, of something not being healthy. So much is it also so in the church. When you can't hurt with your brothers and sisters, when you can't rejoice with your brothers and sisters, when Christ Jesus, our head, sends the signal and you just lay there like a lump on a log or a bump on a log. There's something broken. You may just not belong. This is the way it is. The Spirit of Christ and His body, the church. Romans 8, 9 says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Think about the way in which Peter was reporting back to the church the things that he had seen. Think about the, the, the whole story in Acts 10. What was the thing that made clear to him these Gentiles, they too belong? Hadn't God already told him? God had already reprimanded him and reminded him, no, 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 no. I still call the shots here, Peter, and I'm telling you, don't call something unclean which I have made clean. And yet still, what did God show Peter and what has he shown us to make clear? The Gentiles too belong to this one body, the Spirit of God. They too receive the Spirit. This is the thing that binds us together. Not only that, but this same Spirit of God, it's not just the unifying power in the church. He's also the one that brings this growth together. You remember 1 Corinthians 1.30, it talks about the fact that it's only because of God that we are in Christ. So think about the way that God, the Spirit, accomplishes this. John 16, 8 says that the Holy Spirit will come convicting the world concerning sin. He comes and he brings conviction of sin, confronting man in their rebellion and making clear to them, you're not right with God. Do you remember your days before you were in Christ? 
I don't, I don't relish my own testimony. I've told you before, my desire is for every one of these little babies to grow up and have the most boring testimonies ever. I don't know, Jesus just always loved me. And the gospel was always true. But those of you that were maybe saved later in life, you can, you can possibly recall what it was like before you knew him, how you could just run like the devil and not feel a thing. But the Spirit of God comes and it brings conviction concerning sin. John 15, 26 says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me so that he doesn't just leave you crushed and ashamed and convicted. He leads you to know who Christ Jesus is. Man can't understand. He didn't have eyes to see and ears to hear. It's all Charlie Brown's teacher until the Spirit of God comes. Not only helping him to mentally understand the things that God has said about his son, but to trust him and to believe them, to know with everything in him. That's true. I stake my eternity on that. That's why it says 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God must come and enable you to utter those words. A robot can say the words. A devil can say the words. But to utter those words with conviction and sincerity and truth. Jesus Christ is Lord. John 3, 5 to 6, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. This is all the work of the Spirit of God. Regeneration, eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to believe, the spiritual capacity, removing the veil, a softened heart, no longer a heart of stone, to see Christ, to trust Christ, to confess Christ, to follow Christ, and to be found in Christ. That's why, again, I read you 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews and Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of the one spirit. This is the work of the spirit of God, bringing you into the body of Christ Jesus. So that what we find then is that there's, there's many and, and, and diverse conversion stories just found in this room. Again, I, 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 I'm jealous for those of you that don't have any wild days. You don't have any sowing your wild oat stories. Those of you that just always knew that Christ was Lord, the Holy Spirit came and worked that supernatural, miraculous work to bring you to saving faith. And there's some of you that ran like dogs, that maybe even resisted Christ Jesus, that maybe blasphemed the name of God for much of your life until the Holy Spirit came and did this work. But the reality is, it was all the same work. Do you understand? How many times have I looked at you and told you, Christian, you are a miracle. That same spirit doing the same work to bring us all together into the same body for the same purpose. Giving us life, giving us purpose, giving us animation, giving us desire, giving us direction, giving us ability. Bringing us into one new man as we all walk together. And then he concludes. Just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. I've said often that the Lord's Supper is a slow meal. On that night when Jesus was at the table with his apostles, they reclined. You don't lay down when you're eating fast casual. I say that because 
I want to leave us time to take our time this morning. So I think we'll return to this third one. I lied. I said we'd cover all three. I think we'll return to this third one this evening. But I do think we need to touch on it as we prepare to come and as, as one body to partake of this one bread. He says there, just as we are one body filled and equipped and empowered and directed by one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call as the Holy Spirit has called you into the body of Christ Jesus, as he has called you into this particular body. As, as, as we come to this table, considering this eager to maintain and to sustain and to hold on to this unity, we've got to recognize that you have to come here with a singular hope. I said earlier of organizations, people wander in for any number of reasons. They come because they like the music. They come because they like the preaching. They come because they like the community. They come because they got nothing better to do. They come because they're bored. They come because they're lonely. They come because their hearts hurt. They come because they've lost something. They come because they're scared. They come because they finally believe hell is real. People come for all these various reasons. But when we come to this table, as one body filled with one spirit, we must come with only one hope. Firmly fixed in our hearts, and implanted in our mind. It's the hope for which the Holy Spirit has come to give us. And I remind you that the Christian hope, it is not a distant wish or a, or a dream of some sort. Hebrews 6.19 says that we have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. It is a hope, not a wish, not a dream, not a maybe. It's a sure and steadfast anchor for your soul. It is a lighthouse that you can fix your eyes upon. It is as sure as God is sure. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus is gone is a forerunner on our behalf. How can I be sure that this hope is mine? Okay, the hope is real, but how can I know that it's my hope? How can I know that I have any right to this hope? How can I know that I can come to this table and feast upon the body of Christ Jesus? He says in Ephesians 1, 13, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That spirit that dwells in you, that spirit that led you to cry out that Christ is Lord, that spirit within you that cries out, Abba, Father, reminding you that you have a Father in heaven that doesn't despise you, but that welcomes you to come. That spirit that gives attestation to the reality that Christ Jesus has gone behind the veil on your behalf. He's a down payment of the hope. He's a foretaste of the hope. You've got the down payment. God will make good on the rest. That's why he would go on when he's praying for the church in verse 18 of that first chapter. He says that he prays that we would have the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we might know the hope to which he has called you. Beloved, that was my prayer for you this morning in my back study. God, enlighten the eyes of their heart to know the hope. Don't let them be hopeless and don't let them settle for a lesser hope. As those who receive the foretaste and the down payment and the guarantee allow their hearts to swell, to be directed to heaven where their hope is, Christ Jesus, their Lord. Let them understand what it means when he talks about these things. Let them remember. What did Paul say in chapter 2, Ephesians 2, 12? Remember that you are at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope. 
and without God in the world. You were a hopeless people. You had no hope. You didn't have Christ. You didn't have God. But God. But God. That's your only hope. Your hope cannot be found in you. Your hope cannot even be found in your ability to cling on to him. Your hope is found in him and his ability and his willingness to finish what he started. So I guess I'll finish with this. Ephesians 2, 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Listen now. I plead with you to listen and believe these words. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. He saved you for a purpose. He has seated you in heaven for a purpose. And that purpose is that he could spend eternity. Because that's how long it's going to take. That he could spend eternity pouring out the immeasurable riches of his goodness and his grace and his kindness upon you. That is our hope. Father, we love you and we thank you. We thank you that we as a hopeless people, we weren't just hopeless, we were dirty. We were rebellious, we were sinful. Even if the only sin we ever had was that which had been committed in Adam, we would have been deserving of your wrath. But Father, we added wrath upon wrath upon wrath in our wickedness and in our rebellion. And Father, you came and you ransomed us. You sent your spirit to call us to life. And with that life came a hope. Not just hope that someday, sometime, something good will happen, but hope that even right now, as we wait for that blessed eternal hope, that even right now you are doing us good. So we ask as we prepare to come to this table, Father, that you would work in our hearts. Those that don't yet belong to your body, those that have not yet been filled with your spirit, Father, I pray that you bring that conviction. You do that miraculous, supernatural work now. For those that do, help us to cling to this hope. Father, we love you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.